Welcome to this episode of Security Market Watch. I'm your host, Josh Bruning, and I'm here with the hurricane, Maggie, the hurricane Dylan, uh, who is my wonderful co-host. And Maggie, it is really good to see you. Every time you come to these, you are such a busy person that by the time you get into one of these uh, these episodes, I feel like you're all fired up from your, your daily job. Yeah, you're, you're involved in so much, man. Maggie, I've got to do a whole show with just you, but uh, thank you for being here. And our guest today is Jack Ben Simon. Now, Jack, I can introduce you, but I think that you'll do a better job at introducing yourself. I know in a lot of podcasts, people go, well, this is my job. I don't want to tell you what you do. So can you tell us what it is that you do? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, good to see you, Maggie and Josh, as usual. Um, so my background is in law, in securities law. And so we focus on regulatory compliance, mainly for financial regulated entities. And that includes banks, broker dealers, investment banks, asset managers, money service businesses, money transmitter licenses. And it basically spans three areas, securities law, privacy law, and anti-money laundering compliance. We deal with a lot of technology companies, including cybersecurity companies, including fintechs. Uh, you can't ignore compliance. Compliance straddles public companies, private companies. So that's what we do. We're very focused on those three things, and we don't claim to be a jack of any trades. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got a lot of questions about this SEC rule that's coming up. I don't know if you if you know a whole lot about that, but I would love to talk to you about that because that's all the buzz in cybersecurity. But you know, today it's going to be Maggie's show. Maggie's got all the questions. And so I'm going to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh, well, thank you. I'll, I'll take that spread. Uh, well, I've got lots of questions. Obviously, we've talked a lot about regulatory compliance. And one of the biggest things that I'm somewhat already seeing a trend with a lot of our podcast shows is how do we bridge cybersecurity, technology, and regulatory compliance? A lot of times these departments are like this. It's hard to find a really good CCO. Uh, one of the biggest things that we're seeing is CFOs or CIOs covering the compliance piece when that wasn't necessarily their specialty. So can you speak a little bit to that? What challenges you're seeing um, and, and how it would be a good way for us to bridge that gap? So first of all, tone starts at the top, starts at the very, very top, and it starts with the board. So the board has to build a culture of compliance and it starts there. And that starts with technology, it starts with, um, basically dealing with their business model. And so it starts with board recruitment. So you want to recruit board members that understand technology, the role of cybersecurity, and how they can mitigate their risk. So when you mentioned hiring CFOs and CIOs that can take on the compliance component, that is a dangerous task, uh, mainly because unless they have expertise in that area, which is rare, it's already enough to understand the financial regulations, especially if you're a public company. It's already enough to understand that, as Josh mentioned, there's new regulations by the SEC and cybersecurity. That's enough on its own. And so to add the compliance function is often a mistake. So it's very important that these companies have a dedicated compliance person, and as you said, a chief compliance officer, which is really someone who I would say at least 10, 15 years experience understands public company rules, understands if you're in the financial space, what regulations apply to you, what statutory legislation that's going to apply to your business, et cetera. So that, that is a whole career path on its own. And I think to 
to combine that with a financial career path or with a technology career path is quite dangerous. And it adds a lot of exposure to the firm. Not only that, but, you know, these companies often have to have directors and officers liability insurance. That's a whole other component, which is the insurance component. And so recruiting these board directors is a challenge in this environment because they realize that the exposure is greater and that the rules and regulations in the game are changing almost by the month. If you're looking at the fintech space, if you look at the cryptocurrency space, the SEC is now really clamping down on these uh, crypto exchanges, uh, particularly in the U.S., um, so, you know, you have all these headwinds that are combined and it, it elevates the exposure and I would say the profile of that chief compliance officer position. And as you correctly said as well, there's a shortage of these people in the marketplace and they're commanding a market premium. So it's, it's getting more costly for firms to hire these folks, sometimes returning to a fractional CCO role, which is another way that these companies can save money. But it's also important that these compliance folks understand the role of technology and where it fits into the whole matrix. And so when it comes to cybersecurity, especially if you're a company in the fintech space or even in the asset management space, you're going to be subject to potential hacks and compromising the privacy information of your clients. That's a, that's a big, big deal for regulators. So this is not something that should be taken lightly. And you want to have a dedicated compliance person that is working intricately and I would say extensively with these technology units, and in some cases with the finance units to make sure that there's these gaps are being bridged. I I love that answer. I cannot agree enough with what you just said. And I want to go back to something that you mentioned, and I'm going to use an, a topic that's really already come up two more times since our last recording. I have been speaking with government entities, both state, municipalities, federal government, and one of the biggest things that we're seeing is IT, CIOs, even IT directors, anything from small to large, are not um, experienced enough in cybersecurity, and they're asking cybersecurities to present to their boards. So think about the risk there. Um, but also, when you're talking about hiring board of directors, that in and of itself, very few firms specialize in that. There are so many boxes that need to be checked to even make board qualifications to be a board member. Is there any advice that you could give us as far as, especially from a recruiting standpoint or cybersecurity standpoint, people hiring that we could do to, to maybe just close some of these concerns? Because it's really, it's like we're doing all this extra work for nothing if we're not even going to be compliant out the gate. So I think there's a couple of components that the first thing is it's very important to bifurcate IT and cybersecurity. They're not one another the same. They're two very different roles, very different specialties, very different skill set. And so when you're recruiting a board of directors, when you're looking to fill the slate, for example, if you're looking for a technology person, for example, for IT, someone who's in cybersecurity is not necessarily going to fill that slate. It's not going to be necessarily appropriate. However, if you're looking for a cyber, if, if you're looking for a board of director with cybersecurity expertise, Hiring somebody in IT is not going to fill that slate either. So what you're looking for is someone that has direct experience in your industry vertical, dealing with the challenges and obstacles that they're normally part and parcel of. So, for example, we saw we talked about this, Maggie, before Equifax, the Equifax data privacy leak, which was a significant leak a couple of years ago. Um, and that exposed some of their cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And, of course, they had a massive data protection integrity leak. Uh, which means that they had to, you know, get rescue teams on board. There were press releases that were made, et cetera. 
So having a board of director in that space that has direct experience in that vertical where privacy and information and privacy integrity is so critical to their business, that's something that boards should be looking for. And by the way, they're not easy to find. I'm not suggesting in any way that they're easy to find, but it's worth the time and effort to try to recruit these people. And there are the various you know, outlets out there you can find that, that have this kind of expertise, but but finding that expertise is extremely important. You want to mitigate those risks. And as well, it's very important, if, for example, when you're getting the DNO insurance, the directors and officers liability insurance, when you have these kind of folks on board, it does give the insurance company some more comfort that if an event were to take place, you know, call it like a black swan event, like what happened to Equifax, that there are proper escalation protocols going to be implemented to mitigate the risk even further. Because that's what insurance companies want to see as well, that there's going to be a proper Band-Aid protocol and assessment being done while this is taking place and also uh, after the event takes place as well in terms of a post-ad hoc analysis. Absolutely. I know I said I'd, I'd stand back, but you know I like to talk and <laughs> got Ask questions. questions. <laughs> okay, I do have one question. I got to cut in here. So one of the issues with the SEC, the updated SEC rule is that uh, from a CISO perspective and what a lot of security heads are worried about is that the SEC is taking the responsibility as compared to the earlier um, rule or the earlier publication. They're taking a lot of the burden off of the board and they're putting it onto the CISO, right? Which they wanted to see the opposite. They wanted to see the pressure to be on the board. And that relieves the CISO because the CISO is already, I mean, it's already a thankless job and they're up to their necks in pressure from everybody. Right. So, you know, would, from the insurance perspective, do you think that there's, um, that that pressure is still on the board or like if we're looking at the SEC rule, we're looking at pressure from the insurance company and we're looking at pressure from customers, partners, let alone the business itself. Um, is that pressure, like, is it too much pressure on the CISO? Is it too much pressure on the security function? Or is there some relief that the board can provide? So a couple, there's a couple things attached to that. First of all, I'm not entirely surprised that the SEC has ruled that way because they have ruled very similar in the financial space when it comes to what they call CEO attestation for uh, broker-dealers and asset managers and the like. And so they're putting it on the onus on the CEO to provide for that attestation, particularly for public companies on signing on the financial statements, for example. We saw this with Sarbanes-Oxley, where the CEO attestation, very, very big. And so that put less pressure on the board and more pressure on the CEO. So I'm not entirely surprised at this output. Um, the issue around pressure with the CEO and whether or not it's justified. So there's a couple of strands. So when an event takes place, there is what they call corporate fiduciary responsibility in corporate law. And so particularly if it's a public company, that falls under securities law and corporate law. And so the board of directors has a fiduciary responsibility if there was, let's say, a privacy violation or a cybersecurity attack and thousands of accounts were compromised in terms of data. There is a responsibility for the board to take action provide escalation protocols, et cetera. So there is that board obligation. However, there is also the CISO obligation as management, as executive management, to make sure that all those controls were mitigated beforehand, that the policies and procedures were in place, that as much of the risk aversion or the musk of the, much, most of the risk could have been stripped out prior to the event, and that when the event took place, there was proper implementation and remediation afterwards. 
So in other words, there is a dual responsibility and, and I would say dual liability uh, in these cases. However, if you're looking at strictly from a strict liability perspective, as far as like from a corporate law perspective, it always starts with the board. And as I say, you know, there's a saying, the buck stops and starts with the board. Now, awesome. some would say the buck starts and stops with the CEO. That's as well, you know, just because it percolates from top to down. But more importantly, it starts with the board. And so if you don't have an effective board, if you don't have the proper slate of directors, if you don't have the proper composition of a board, you know, if the board has five people and four, three are finance, one compliance, nobody in technology, then, you know, you're going to be exposed. You have major exposure there. So it's – and the other issue is the the inter – the working relationship communication between the CISO and the board. Typically, the CISO reports to the CEO, the CEO reports to the board. You want to have a symbiotic relationship between the CISO, CEO, and the board so that there's a fundamental understanding in terms of what those security obligations uh, are for the CISO and how those risks are being properly remediated, where they're documented, especially if you're a public company. This takes on significantly more importance because you now have to comply with public company rules, which is under the SEC and the exchange rules, as well as corporate law statutes and securities law statutes, which are very onerous to, to, to manage. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about international spreads, companies wanting to get a much more global footprint. You're very well internationally traveled. You've done a lot of business outside of the United States. This also adds another level of risk to what we're talking about as companies grow. I personally believe if you're going to go and hire a CISO, you need to hire a CCO at the same time if you're going to go globally. It, it makes zero sense to not do that, especially being at a 3.5 million deficit on a cybersecurity level. What advice would you give to companies wanting to do that, wanting to really spread their wings and, and go anywhere out of the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for the simple reason that firms are going global right now, there's much more to their domestic marketplaces than there is. And so there's bigger bags to be had internationally. When you go ahead internationally, for example, we had a client, a major financial institution client with billions under management. We had set them up in several countries in Asia. And what we have discovered was, for example, in countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, very, very nuanced technology, data protection, data privacy, and cybersecurity requirements, uh, particularly in the financial institution space. When I say nuanced, I'm talking about the letter of the law. I'm talking about very specific prescriptive rules and regulations that allow for very little discretion. So what that means is that when you're going into these jurisdictions, you want to make absolutely sure that you have the proper resources, you got the proper compliance programs in place, you un fully understand the universe of risks that are involved, everything from low, medium, high, how you're documenting those risks, whether it's software or otherwise, and to the compliance point that you have a proper compliance resource, whether it's a manager of compliance or a CCO, but someone understands the local rules of regulations and how the manuals, for example, are going to comport with the technology requirements, because the technology requirements cannot be separated from the regulatory compliance requirements. They almost go hand in hand, because if you have a data protection breach or you have a data integrity breach or you have some of these uh, you know, other types of breaches on the cybersecurity front, in Asia, for example, regulators are not shy about, about finding foreign companies. And, uh, you know, I tell the story all the time of we have one of our resources in Japan 
uh, is an excellent securities lawyer, both trained in the U.S. and Japan, incidentally, which is very rare, that tells a story about a well-known British asset manager. They got licensed in Japan, and they ran a mock of, US, of uh, Japanese securities rules and regulations. The, the Japanese regulators sent them various notices to attend a hearing. They, did, they ignored all the notices, and there were various violations, right, as an asset manager. And essentially, after about two years, the Japanese regulator called the UK regulator, called the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, and blew the whistle on them, basically said, you have a rogue player on your hands. Well, the FCA got so peeved, they essentially took the action of revoking the license of the UK asset manager in the UK. So what that means is a very important lesson there, very instructive lesson, that you know regulatory arbitrage is real. The regulatory environment is very close-knit. People talk. And your behavior and compliance in one jurisdiction can affect your business licensing and registration in your home jurisdiction. So they were out of business. Without a license to operate in the UK, they had a couple billion under management. They're out of business. So this is a classic example of when you're going to these countries, when you're talking about cybersecurity and technology and data protection, uh, anti-money laundering compliance, et cetera, that it's not a nice to have to comply with their rules and regulations. It's not a cultural nice to have. It's a must. It's a must. And they, they are not shy about imposing penalties, fines, and other uh, regulatory nuances that would penalize the firm. And also, quite frankly, the brand and the reputation of the company. Mm-hmm. So obviously it makes sense to have somebody on territory in another country that knows the culture, that knows the language and everything. My first thought, and Josh will agree with me on this from a cybersecurity standpoint, we got a little trust issues. All right. How do we work that in? How do we gain trust with someone we've never met in a totally new territory we've never worked? That's an excellent question. Fair question. Um, like anything else, trust takes time. It takes time to build, and you want to make sure that you're dealing with credible resources who've done this before, done, been there, done that, perhaps have worked for financial institutions. We want to, we conduct professional background checks. We do this all the time: civil background checks, criminal background checks. Uh, we check out their references. So it's a whole process, right? It's a whole due diligence process. But the most important thing is where have they done this before? Which type of firms? What, what were the size of the firms? What was their assets under management? What was their business model? Have they done this for a similar type company that we're now entrusting them, you know, to your point, Maggie, with really critical core assets of the company? And so, you know, that, that's you want you want to take your time there. We have developed relationships, for example, placement agents, distribution agents in many of these countries in Asia where we've worked with them before. And now it's a question of, okay, so does this does this fit make sense, given the nature of the client, given the nature of the service that you're offering, and the nature of the level of protection that you're providing? Now, at the same time, depending on the jurisdiction and depending on, on what you're looking to do there in terms of your offering, et cetera, you may want to get local insurance. So in other words, you may have an insurance provider domestically, but it also may make sense to get additional layers of protection by getting insurance in that jurisdiction, just mm-hmm. in case you know stuff comes down the pike. But look, like anything else, whether it's locally or abroad, uh, you want to be working with folks that have have pedigree, they have a history, um, and th- those are the folks that we look for. And so it, it takes time, it takes acumen, as well as making sure you're asking the right questions and conducting thorough background checks. So let's say we're an investor. I'm an investor. Josh is an investor. We want to invest in startup cybersecurity companies. 
And we know that we want to make sure we're extremely compliant with the goal of going global, having that large footprint. And if not, you know, we see companies, they'll sell off, but they want to have a good portfolio. So when they're ready to sell, they can have that global footprint ready to go as, you know, something to look sexy for anyone who wants to purchase the company. What advice would you give to investors? Um, well, a couple of things. First of all, when you're when you're investing in a company, you obviously want to make sure that you understand management, their business model, et cetera. But as they go abroad, there are two key considerations to make sure that there's proper compliance. One is understanding the business case of going into these jurisdictions. For example, you may have, let's say, $10 billion under management and your product is mainly retail focused. That doesn't necessarily mean that your product is going to be successful in Taiwan. You have to understand the structure of the market. You have to understand where the demand is coming from, the retail space. Are there competing products in your area in Taiwan, for example? Now, Taiwan, remember, is not as well-developed as, for example, the Japanese market. The Japanese market is an extremely well-developed, sophisticated market. So that market may make more business sense as far as looking at it from a competitive perspective, doing a SWOT analysis, etc. The next thing that we tell our clients is the regulatory case. What is the regulatory case? Once the business case has been satisfied, what is the regulatory case for going into this jurisdiction? In other words, what are the barriers to entry? How cost prohibitive is it? For example, you know, we talked about this before, Dubai. Dubai is becoming a more of a financial center, financial repository. We'll call it haven, even a tax haven, although they've imposed now a 2% tax on corporations. But it is cost prohibitive to get set up in Dubai. It's not like setting up a Delaware corporation. You pay $400, one or two days later, you have a Delaware corporation. That's not the case in, in Dubai. It can cost anywhere from forty dollars to $50,000 to have the right board of directors on board, to get the, the proper uh, articles of formation, articles of incorporation, and other constating documents. So, it, again, it really depends, right? So there is the business case. So the regulatory case, yeah, barriers to entry have come down in Dubai. However, in terms of the business case, does that market make sense? There's something like 20 top sovereign wealth funds in Dubai with a minimum of, let's say, $10 billion each. But how are you going to attract those pools of capital? Maybe your product is commoditized in attracting those pools of capital. So that's why we start with the, 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 the business case, then the regulatory case. Because the regulatory case may prove that maybe there are insurmountable, insurmountable barriers to entry. It's cost prohibitive. Uh, and also that there may be very uncertain regulation coming about. So, for example, if you're a crypto company and you have all the cybersecurity controls in place and you want to go into a country like Japan, well, Japan is very crypto friendly, but highly regulated, extremely highly regulated. So that has to fit in with corporate culture and, and your long, short and long-term business plans. So those are the two main considerations that we advise clients in. Fantastic. Man, I wish we could go further. I know you've got a hard stop. I wish you could as well, but we'd love to continue on another point. And I appreciate your time here, Jack. And again, anybody who is, if you're an investor and you're um, you're interested in, in regulatory compliance services, better call Jack. You know, there's better call Saul, but I'm going to say better call Jack. Jack Thanks, Ben Simon. Real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank Maggie, you. thank you again. And thank you, dear listener or viewer. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Security Market Watch. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube. You can catch me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash Josh Bruning. Um, and if, you're, if you check out our YouTube channel, please hit like and subscribe. Thanks a lot. Bye.